Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Interestingly, as we prepare to celebrate our Lord's first coming in this season of the year, uh, in Luke's gospel where we're at, Jesus will be speaking of his second coming. This morning we'll be looking at our second look at Luke 17, 20 to 37. We'll deal with the bulk of the passage but I'd like to begin by reading it in its entirety. Luke 17, 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They are eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on their housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so last week, we considered primarily Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and their question to him. They had asked him, When is the kingdom of God coming? Jesus had presented himself as Israel's king. Jesus had announced on previous occasions the kingdom of God has come near, and even more recently still, in chapter 10, the kingdom of God has come upon you when he healed the demoniac. And so the Pharisees, I believe partly in mocking, were asking, so so when's this kingdom coming, Jesus? This was not simply a question on their minds, but on the minds of all. Look over to chapter 19 of of Luke, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Go all the way to Acts chapter 1 in Luke's sequel. The resurrected Lord, according to verse 3, he presented himself alive After his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, the disciples, during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Look down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, 
So one question, the disciples spent 40 days with the resurrected Lord, during which time he taught them about the kingdom of God. And what is their question at the end of 40 days? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So there's a great expectation of this kingdom, the literal fulfillment of passages like Psalm 2. And yet Jesus' response to the Pharisees, and here's your first blank in the little gray box, is shockingly, the kingdom of God is already present. The kingdom of God is already present. It is the now and not yet kingdom. Jesus is the king. He is ruling over his subjects. And so when he tells the Pharisees who are looking for signs and and things would indicate the coming of this geopolitical and earthly kingdom is you guys have missed its inception already. It's here. And certainly not like it will be here, but it is here. The king is here. I am in your midst. I'm in front of you. And you're missing the forest for the trees. I mean, we looked at last week. If you will not recognize Jesus' kingship now, if you will not bow the knee to the king now, you will not see or enter his kingdom then. And that's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. I'm I'm here now. Deal with me. Jesus' kingdom is already present. But then, as is the pattern in this section of Luke, he turns to the disciples. And he fills in the other half. If we just left it there, we might think, well, Jesus' kingdom is just a spiritual kingdom. And it's just a matter of of what his believers do in this life and now. And there, there are those who name themselves Christians who that's what they focus on. We've talked about the social gospel. We've talked about those who simply see the kingdom of God as a matter of, of doing good deeds to our neighbor. That is part of the kingdom of God, but it is not its fullness. The kingdom of God is like leaven mixed into two measures of flour, and it eventually leavens the whole loaf. It's like a mustard seed that initially grows as the smallest into the largest, housing the birds of the field. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples, and we began to look at last week, just cracked it, that the kingdom of God, even though it's present, will be consummated. It is not yet In fact, I think a helpful illustration um, of of what we're living in is the time period after David. Remember, Jesus is David's greater son, and many of the events in David's life will echo into the life of Jesus. Jesus, David is anointed king by Samuel. He is the the king, God's king, and yet Saul continues to reign for years, does he not? And David has, has some sort of rule over his men. There are people in Israel who go to him, who, who pay him homage, who recognize him as the Lord's anointed. But it's not for many, many years till David actually sits on a throne and rules all of Israel. And so Psalm 110 tells us, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so Jesus is in that state where his kingdom is inaugurated. He, he is king. And churches, in one sense, are like embassies. They're they're places where God's kingdom rules in our lives. And yet we await a kingdom that will come that will be from sea to shining sea that will be over all the earth. And Jesus speaks of that to his disciples. So it's the now and the not yet kingdom. And, And the tension we looked at last week is you can so focus on the one you could ignore the other. So are those Christians who simply see the aspects and the implications of the kingdom now, that's all they see, and they completely forget about the kingdom to come. And in its worst instances, notions of heaven and hell get get cut off. And all that matters is doing good to our fellow man. On the other extreme are those who so focus on the kingdom to come 
and heaven and hell, that they really are no earthly use to their neighbor. There's no acts of loving kindness to their, to their fellow citizens. They're simply focused on the kingdom to come. And, and Jesus is balancing both out, telling the Pharisees, you need to deal with me. And yet still teaching his disciples, praying, thy kingdom come. There's a future aspect to his kingdom. We're to look at that this morning. We also notice that Jesus switched the categories. The Pharisees asked him about the kingdom of God, right, in verses 20 through 21. What Jesus begins to speak about to the disciples is not by name the kingdom of God, but either the days or the day, he alters it, of the Son of Man. Verse 26, you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Verse 24, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Verse 26, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 31, on that day. And even in 34, in that night. And all the way through even to 18, 8. He's speaking about this in 18, 8. I tell you, you will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? And we looked at Daniel 7, and we understood that this title, Son of Man coming in relationship to a kingdom, is connecting with Daniel's prophecy of one who would come to the Ancient of Days, and to him would be given a kingdom and dominion and authority, and his rule would never end. And so Jesus, for the first time in Luke, is beginning to link his his favorite self-designation, the Son of Man, which is a clever Self-designation. Remember, Jesus came to hide things from some people and reveal truth to others. And the Son of Man is perfect for doing that. On the one hand, the Son of Man is a, simply means mortal or human. It's used that way in Ezekiel dozens of times. And so Jesus taking that moniker on himself is not going to alert anybody. And yet, for those with eyes to see, the connection to Daniel 7 and this one who comes to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom makes him a very, very significant Old Testament figure. And here we begin to say, he will receive a kingdom. He will bring a kingdom. And so he begins to teach his disciples. And we're going to look at this in four points, all looking at Christ's return. That's the focus, Christ's return, the days or the day of the Son of Man. And so the first thing we're going to see is the delay of Christ's return, the delay of Christ's return. Chapter 19, we saw they're expecting the kingdom to come at any moment. And their expectation is that the Messiah would come. The Messiah would cast off the shackles of any political oppression that they would face. The Messiah would, would rule the earth. He would, he would be a military conqueror. He would elevate Israel in the sight of the nations. The things spoken of precisely in passages like Zechariah 14. And Jesus will do this at his second coming. He will fight the combined armies of the world with the sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God. And as Martin Luther um, penned in his hymn, one little word shall fell them. He will speak. And he will win and he will reign and his name will be one and he will be one and the glory of God will be on the earth. But that isn't what happens next in the messianic plan. And so what Jesus says to his disciples, and I don't think they get it because a chapter later, they're still looking for this kingdom at any moment, even at the beginning of Acts, the disciples, is, is it now, Lord? Is it now? And yet, Jesus speaks clearly, it will be delayed, the delay of Christ's return. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. 
And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus tells them plainly that at some point in the future, they will desire Christ's return. The disciples' desire is Christ's return. And the reason why I believe that is... Because in 18, which links all this together, the Son of Man language, they're praying, you're praying, you're praying persistently like the widow. Don't give up, keep praying. And what is it that they're praying for? Verse 7, will he not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, we find faith on the earth. So the picture in 18 is of Christians, his elect, his disciples praying, Lord, help, Lord, come, Lord, come, help, help, come. Or as the Apostle John says in the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come swiftly. They'll desire, they will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. What does that, what does that imply then? A time of persecution, a time of trouble, a time of difficulty. So is a kingdom immediately to be set up? No. In fact, what Jesus says to these disciples is rather than a kingdom, you're going to have me absent, and you're going to long for me to be here. So he's altering their timetable of what, what to expect. The disciples desire Christ's return. Christ's return. So Jesus predicts that before the kingdom comes, his people will be crying out. And, and we do this ourselves, do we not? When we, when we suffer the effects of death and the curse and disease, when we see atrocities done in the world, when we, when we see the evil around us, do we not say, Lord, come, Lord, come? The, the disembodied souls under the altar of God in Revelation 6 cry out, How long, O Lord, until you vindicate our blood? And so Jesus will not immediately be setting up a kingdom. Rather, he speaks of a time in the future where he will be absent and his disciples and his followers will long for his return. They will not see it. That also means that whatever Jesus is speaking of following is not in the immediate future. Some people have argued that some of what Jesus is talking about takes place in 70 AD. If that was the case, then his opening statement is false. You will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Well, actually, you will see it in 70 AD. No, what Jesus is speaking about is something future yet for them. that They will not see. Their desire will be to see Christ's return. They will not see it. And then he follows it up with a warning. Christ's warning, do not follow false reports. So the picture gets even bleaker. The disciples will long to see Christ. He will be absent They won't see him, but what they will hear are reports, oh, he's here, oh, he's there. And Jesus says, don't don't believe that. And we can look through history, and we've seen people who've claimed to be Jesus Christ. We've seen people who've claimed to know when he's going to return. All sorts of false reports going out. He's here, he's there, he'll be here, he'll be there. And what Jesus says is that it won't be a mystery when he returns. Look, look at the, an example he uses here. Point C. His return will be unmistakable. His return will be unmistakable. Don't follow false reports because his return will be unmistakable. Do not go out and follow them for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in this day. Well, what's the import of that analogy of lightning going from one end of the sky to the other? Two things. One. 
it will be so sudden and so quick that there won't be any telling people. I mean, imagine the second you start to see the lightning flash in the sky, trying to get on your phone and tell somebody before it spreads to the other side of the sky, the lightning's here. You can't do it. It's that sudden. It's that instantaneous. The second, though, is anybody with eyes to see anywhere on the lunch landscape of the countryside can see the lightning. It's not something only certain people in a certain location can see. It lights up the entire sky. It is unmistakable. You, you don't need secret inside knowledge. When it happens, you'll know, in other words. So but Jesus tells his disciples, there will come a time in the future you will eagerly and earnestly desire that I was there. And you won't see me. And you won't see my day. Beyond that, there will be people saying, he's here, he's there. Don't go out. Why? Because when I come, he says, it'll be obvious. You'll know it. Everyone will know it. The book of Revelation tells us when the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, every eye sees it. It will be unmistakable. Strangely enough, this was a, a problem that had to be corrected in the early church. The Apostle Paul has to write in 2 Thessalonians 2, This, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The Thessalonians had apparently thought they'd missed it. Jesus came and, you know, we weren't paying attention. And here Jesus precisely makes it clear when he comes. It will be unmistakable. It will be obvious. Therefore, you don't need to listen to reports of people saying here, there, or everywhere. It will be obvious. You'll know when Jesus returns. And then, Jesus, for the sixth time in Luke's gospel, makes a plain statement, though, of what comes next in the Messianic program. Will the Messiah institute a kingdom next? No. What will he do? Suffer and die. The Son of Man must first suffer and die. It's the antithesis of what they're looking for. This is one of the reasons why the disciples were so discouraged and confused at the crucifixion. But Jesus was plain about this. He must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You see, the Old Testament has many threads speaking of the Messiah, and there's a suffering servant thread. We see that in Isaiah 53. They, they had clung to, like many of us want to do, the parts you like. And so people had clung to those threads and themes of the Messiah, a ruling Messiah, a righteous Messiah, giving justice, a Messiah who exalted Israel. They weren't ready for the suffering, dying, humbled Messiah. And Jesus makes it clear, first, first, he has to suffer and die. That's why he's heading to Jerusalem. He's not heading to Jerusalem to throw off the Romans. He's not heading to Jerusalem to start an insurrection. He's going to Jerusalem to die. We've known that since Luke 9. He resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so we see the delay. He tells his disciples, I am not about to immediately set up a kingdom. You're going to wish I was here. You're going to long for it. And people are going to say, I'm here and I'm there and I'm everywhere. Don't, don't follow them. Don't be mistaken. It'll be obvious when I come. But first, first, I have to suffer and die. That's the first thing we learn. The delay of Christ's return, the delay of Christ's return. Secondly, in verses 26 to 30, the suddenness of Christ's return, the suddenness of Christ's return. Jesus goes on to give some comparison to what it will be like when he returns. Two examples, actually, first of Noah and then of Lot. 
And they're parallel. You see that, right? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they're eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so we get a further insight into the time period between when Jesus is speaking and his coming. It'll be like the days of Noah. It'll be like the days of Lot. Well, in what sense? In this sense, sinful men carried on normally until the very last moment. That's unmistakable. In fact, I think this gives us some insight into why Jesus switches from days to day. There's the days of Noah, meaning the general time period of Noah. But when we speak of the day, verse 27, what's the day? It's the day he went into the ark and it closed and salvation was done. There's no further option to get on that boat. On that day, the rain came down, the water came up, and the world that then was was destroyed. But right up until the last moment, what were they doing? Oh, they were just carrying on as normal. They had a warning in front of them. They had Noah took 125? 125? Jeff, you got to know this one. 120, thank you, Lee. 120 years to build the ark. 120 years. They had a warning, prophetic warning. In fact, Noah is elsewhere called a preacher of righteousness. Did they heed the warning? Did they get convicted? Did they inquire? Did they look into these things? No, they just carried on. They ignored it, blithely unaware. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading used a great word. I had to look it up to confirm I knew what it meant. This is a good one. Insouciance. Insouciance is the quality of lacking care or concern, indifference. And here, that is what Jesus is highlighting is the insouciance of Noah's generation. Dave's going to find a way to slip that into the messenger now. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I love precise words. But, but that's, that's here, there's plenty to condemn them for. I mean, in, in Genesis' account, the, every thought and inclination and intent of the heart was only evil continually. But here what Jesus is highlighting as judgment-worthy is despite the fact that there's Noah, they're completely indifferent and unaware. They're just going on as normal, doing the normal things that they would do, which include things like eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Life's just going on as normal. And they, have, they, they should know God gave them a warning that they're walking right up to the edge of judgment, a cataclysmic and absolute judgment that will destroy the earth. And they're just getting there closer and closer, day by day by day. And they're just carrying on as normal, completely indifferent, unconcerned, until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus says that's what it's going to be like at his second coming. People are not going to be expectant. They're not going to be thinking, oh, I think he's almost here. They're just going to be doing what they do, carrying on in their insouciance. Yeah, it's the last time I used that, I promise. Um, well, maybe not. We'll see. Okay. Um, and judgment came and swept them away. An absolutely cataclysmic judgment. The two examples Jesus picks are cataclysmic, final irrevocable judgments, the flooding of the entire earth, save for one man and his family. 
Well, let me look at just as the days of Lot. Same parallel here. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And once again, we have the same pattern. Sinful men carried on normally until the very last moment. And again, they, they were given some sense or sign that something was up. They had the two angelic visitors who visited Lot, and, and the men were struck blind. Not, not as much of a warning as Noah had. But the point here is, again, these people, I mean, you, you picture from our vantage point, these people are minutes and moments and hours away from having fire and brimstone and sulfur rain down upon them. And they're buying, and they're selling, and somebody's planting a field. They're completely unaware indifferent, unconcerned. And then a cataclysmic judgment falls upon them and obliterates them. The suddenness of Christ's return, that's what he's highlighting here. It'll be sudden and it'll be unexpected. And I think by implication, it'll be cataclysmic. So so the notion of someone saying, oh, here he is over here. No, that's not what it'll be like at all. You'll know when he comes, and he will come suddenly. Elsewhere in Scripture, he's referred to as like a thief in the night. It'll be like Noah and Lot. The, the, the world around us won't be expecting it. The world around us will be carrying on as normal, doing their thing. And then he'll be revealed, and the judgment will come. The suddenness of Christ's return. Third, we see the response to Christ's Return, the response to Christ's return. Here Jesus gives directives, and this can be somewhat confusing. Who are these directives for? And to help frame this in, especially as you think about things like, well, where's the rapture fitted? Jesus is looking at a very particular focused event, his second coming. He's already told this audience they won't see it. You'll long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you will not see it. So I think the simplest way to understand this is what Jesus gives now is he gives instruction, tells them what to do, is For whoever it is that is alive and sees these things, whoever it is who's alive at this time, who's a disciple, he's speaking to the disciples, here's what you ought to do. And that's the way I'm going to approach it. Verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the roof housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Notice the shift now to day. We saw the days of Noah, but the day of Noah was the day he went into the ark. It was the day the judgment came. And in verse 28, there were the days of Lot. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom. So when Jesus begins 31, on that day. On what day? The day Jesus comes and the cataclysmic judgment comes suddenly and on an unsuspecting world. On that day, if you're alive on that day, and you're a disciple, then Jesus has a word of instruction for you. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So here's Jesus' instructions. One, on that day, flee without delay. On that day, you must flee without delay. And there's a sense in which Jesus' second coming will reveal the hearts of men and what they love. Jesus has already warned his disciples they must renounce all their possessions. Here's a practical example of where that comes into play. 
This is going to be a difficult time. Jesus speaks with a bit more clarity in Luke 21. We'll look at it briefly. He has, he's just beginning to develop this theme. So if you have questions in your mind, what's exactly he talking about? That's okay. He will speak with more clarity in a few chapters. But what's clear is this. On the day when Jesus returns, there will be some form of tribulation, distress, or danger with which a person needs to flee. Why do I say flee? Well, two reasons. Whatever this is, the Israelites would have um, patios on their roof, maybe a small herb garden, um, someplace to recline in the shade, and they'd have steps going on the outside of their house, and they have possessions on the inside. And what Jesus is saying is, when, when that happens, on this day, you don't go inside and get your stuff. You just skedaddle. If you're in a field on that day, you don't think to yourself, man, I need to run home and grab my stuff. You go. And we see that more clearly in um, verse 31. Likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. What do you mean turn back? Lot's wife fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. And as she fled Sodom and Gomorrah, her heart was still there. She turned back, was turned into a pillar of salt. Don't do that. What he's saying is if you're alive on that day and you see this, you go. And your heart's longing for your possessions... Don't, you just cut, you go. On that day, you flee without delay. Turn to Luke 21. He makes it a lot clearer there, but I think we can get this notion of flight clearly enough here. But in Luke 21, verse 20, he will elaborate and give some further clarity. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. I'll pause here. This is, this is what's described in the Old Testament um, in Zechariah 12 through 14, most clearly what we would refer to as Armageddon, among other things. Um, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. If you're in a field, don't go into your house. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant in those days and who are nursing infants in those days. Why? It's, it's a lot harder to flee. If you've got a nursing infant or if you're pregnant, it's going to slow you down. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles. So there's some greater clarity. All Jesus is telling his disciples here is whoever's alive when this happens, if you see it, you're going to want to run. You want to run suddenly, quickly, leave your possessions behind, flee without delay. Flee without delay. And then he gives this exhortation. Remember Lot's wife. Lose your life to save it. Lose your life to save it. See, Jesus' return is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's going to separate the materialists from the disciples. It's going to reveal where people's hearts are at. Do you love the things of this world? Do you love your possessions? Do you love mammon? Use categories that have been introduced earlier in Luke. <clears throat> or are you a disciple? Lot loved or had some longing for some connection. I mean, Lot's wife had some longing for a connection for the things of Sodom and she looked back. And, and it's, what's terrifying is she was so close to deliverance, so close to salvation, so close from escaping judgment. And yet because her heart turned back, she was judged. And what Jesus is saying to those who are alive when this happens, 
be, be, be careful. You don't want to be like Lot's wife. You don't want to seem to have escaped something only after getting that close to be destroyed and judged. And then he picks up this statement that he's used already. Whoever would lose his life will save it. And what he means here is this, the things of this life. I mean, turn back to chapter 9 in Luke where Jesus said this most clearly at the first declaration that he was going to the cross. I've told you that Jesus has spoken clearly of the cross. And in Luke 9, 22, for the first time, Jesus speaks unapologetically without any ambiguity, without any um, lack of clarity. He's, he's crystal clear. They still don't get it because it's just such a challenge to their messianic understandings. But in 22, 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it profit a man if he goes and gets the stuff inside of his house and is judged? And so when Jesus speaks the second half of that, I think it calls that to mind. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, which means something like whoever seeks to hold on to the things of this life, the things of this world, the trappings of this world, money, possessions, property, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose. You go, you flee. Remember Lot's wife. Lose your life to save it. Why? For judgment will be swift. Judgment will be swift. And here we get probably the most um, confusing part of this whole section in verse 34 through 35. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Well, let me start with what's clear and then move to what's less clear. What's clear is this. On that day or on that night, as the case may be, because the day is made up of day and night. You go to Genesis 1, there's evening, there's morning, the first day. So day doesn't necessarily mean daylight. It just means on that day. And at least at some portion, it'll be nighttime. Two will be in one bed, one taken, the other left. Two will be grinding, one taken, the other left. Now, some people have asked, is this the rapture? I don't think so. In fact, most people, um, sorry, most dispensationalists do not think this is the rapture. Why? First, this is a picture of judgment. We're discussing context of judgment taking place, not deliverance. We're talking about fleeing something that's so awful that you don't run back inside your house to get your stuff. You just go. This is judgment that's coming. Now, it's either the judgment that happens when Christ returns and separates the sheep from the goats, or, and I think far more likely based on um, Luke 21, this is the, the tribulation that happens. Remember, Christ's return is just at Israel's greatest dilemma. The nations of the world gather around Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14. It's the day of Israel's distress. The city is breached. A third is taken out into captivity. A third is killed. And a third is saved. And that is when the Lord goes out to fight for his people and returns. So there'll be great tribulation of man on earth. 
And so the question then is, okay, is the one taken, the one saved from judgment, or is the one taken, the one left to judgment? Again, can't be absolutely dogmatic on this. I believe the one taken is the one taken in judgment. But what regardless happens is a swift and sudden sifting and division, a division that separates families and friends. People are on one side of the line or the other. It's not as the whole household doesn't go together. This judgment that comes, this tribulation that comes is swift, it's decisive, and it separates even the closest human relationships. Remember again in in Luke 21 where we read, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I think the picture being taken away is similar to the way the flood swept away the world that then was. That's my best guess. But regardless, it's a picture of a division and a sifting that is sudden and final and instantaneous. Which brings us then to Jesus' fourth point. After saying all this, the disciples ask a question which probably isn't the question that's on your mind. In fact, I wrestled over this. Pastor Daniel and I talked about this some. Where's this question coming from? He says all of this, right? I'm going to be delayed. You're going to wish I was here and I won't be here. And people will say, he's here, he's there, he's everywhere. Don't believe him. Because when I come, it'll be obvious, it'll be unmistakable. But first, I've got to suffer. In fact, when I come, it'll be like the days of Noah, where everyone's just doing their own thing. It'll be a normal day until, boom, it happens. Suddenly, unexpectedly. It'll be like the days of Lot leading up to when he left Sodom and Gomorrah. But on that day, if you see it, you need to skedaddle. You need to move. You need to leave your possessions. You need to not be like Lot's wife who was torn in two ways. You need to go because there'll be a swift division. That's what Jesus has just said. The disciples' response, their question, where? Where? Why would they ask that? I think... The best answer for that is partly that they're not fully tracking with what he's saying. It's clear. A chapter later, they're still thinking the kingdom's here, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. But I think it parallels to what he told them not to be deceived by. He told them, people will say here or there, don't believe him. Don't believe him. Okay, then where, Lord? Where is all this going to happen? Where is this sudden, unexpected dilemma and peril going to take place? Where will we be fleeing from? Now, he tells them the answer to this in 21, Jerusalem. The Old Testament gives them the answer, Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 and Zechariah 12, Jerusalem. Ezekiel 39, the Old Testament's clear. And so I think Jesus' answer is, is similar to what he said with the lightning. Point four, the judgment at Christ's return. The judgment at Christ's return. The question, where, Lord? His answer, where the corpses. There the vultures will gather, to which I want to think there are two points we can draw from that. The first is very similar to the lightning. I think his answer is, it'll be obvious. It'll be obvious. You won't be wondering, is it now? You won't be wondering that. It'll be obvious when this happens. Just You know what it's like living here. You see four or five vultures circling there. You can see that from miles away. You know what? You know something's dead or dying beneath them, Right? Okay, that's what Jesus says. Where, Lord, where will it be? (laughs) Where the vultures gather, there the body is. Come on. 
just like the lightning going from one end of the sky to the other, it'll be obvious. When all the nations of the world gather up together against Jerusalem, it'll be obvious. But he's doing a second thing, I believe, as well, in making this analogy. The day of the Lord, in the Old Testament, if you turn back to Ezekiel 39, there's an imagery of dead bodies and birds. In fact, one of our own, I think, has this, a tattoo of this on their arm. I'm not mistaken. Um, go, to, go to Ezekiel 39. I think Jesus is making an allusion. Um, at the very least, for those of us who know, of eyes to see, we come back and we reread this. We go, oh. Because just as the world was destroyed in a flood and it was cataclysmic, final, and absolute judgment, just as you probably couldn't imagine a more final and absolute judgment on a city than what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. So at Jesus' return, there will be an equally final and equally cataclysmic judgment that will occur. And in Ezekiel 39, we are dealing with um, Gog and Magog and what will be known as the Battle of Armageddon. I want to jump to verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial, fe- sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. And you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and of lambs and of he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk. At the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. See, at the end of this battle where the Lord returns, there's just going to be dead bodies everywhere. Everywhere. Look, look back at verse 11. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel. The Valley of the Travelers, East Coast, it will block. He talks about literally a description of how for months they'll be burying the dead bodies after this battle. For months. Turn, turn to Revelation 19. And again, I don't think this is the, the first... Meaning of what Jesus says. I think it's a bit more subtle. There's a sense which is a proverb. Where will it be, Lord? Where will this take place? You'll know it when you see it. It'll be like birds circling over dead bodies. But for those who are getting it, I I can't help but think there's an unmistakable illusion because Revelation picks this up. Revelation picks this up. When Jesus returns, when, when this cataclysmic showdown takes place, verse 11 of chapter 19, this is the second coming of our Lord. Not humble and on a donkey, dressed in white and in power. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And sitting on, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That is a reference to Psalm 2 and the worldwide kingdom rule of the Messiah. 
He will tread the winepress, the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. It's a reference to Isaiah 63, where Isaiah 63, why are, why are your robes red? This is why his white robe is red, the bottom, the hem. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's what will happen when our Lord returns. And so I can't help but hear some reference to Ezekiel's prophecy picked up in Revelation. Jesus speaking about his second coming being sudden and unexpected and unmistakable, desired, delayed. Where, Lord? Where? Where the birds are, there the body is. That's precisely what it will be like when he returns and lays to waste the armies of the world. So what, what does this mean for us? I, th- I think the point's pretty straightforward and pretty unmistakable. We live in a day and an age where a, 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 an offer of peace is, is extended by the Lord. We're like people in a, in a rebellious city, a city that's revolted against the king, completely surrounded by an unstoppable army that at any moment could breach the walls and destroy the city, and yet this this ruler in sieging the city offers peace. If you'll lay down your arms, if you'll surrender, if you'll renounce your treason, you will be forgiven. You'll be made a citizen of the kingdom. You'll be adopted. But yet at any moment, the walls could breach, the judgment could come. And Jesus is warning his disciples to be alert, to be vigilant, not to be like Lot's wife, not to have their their, their internal affections split. Christ will return. And if you've delayed dealing with him, if you've been caught up like the rocky soil or the thorny soil, remember the thorny soil? Initially it receives the word and then the cares and the concerns of this world overtake it and we get caught up in marrying and being given in marriage and buying and selling and planting and completely unawares and then one day on the day you least expect it, it is too late. The birds will gather and eat the flesh of the great and the small alike. So if, if you have not done business with the Lord Jesus Christ, know that before he brings in this kingdom, he went to Jerusalem to die on a cross for the sins of, of men and women like you and me. He suffered on our behalf. He bore the penalty for our sin in his body. He absorbed the wrath of God. He died on a, in our stead as our scapegoat. And he offers forgiveness, he offers pardon, he offers adoption and reconciliation to those who will, who will turn to him from your rebellion, turn to him from your warfare against God, turn to him from, from all the false gods that you've been worshiping and serving. And you can be forgiven if you will put your faith in him. And if you are one of those disciples, the warning here is, is be on your guard against the, the subtlety of this world and its trappings grabbing a hold of your heart again. Guard yourself from the danger of self-deception. Lot's wife looked like she was going to make it. And she didn't. Be alert. Be vigilant. Don't get caught up in the insouciance of this world. 
There is an offer of peace. The, the insane thing is to ignore it. You want to evaluate it, conclude it's false? Okay. You're wrong, but okay. But to say, eh, I'll deal with that later, is the most insane response. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He tells the Pharisees, look, don't worry about the coming kingdom. Deal with the present king. But to his disciples, he tells them, I'm going to be delayed. I'm going to die. You're going to long for me, but I will come. Be alert. Be vigilant. And that's a word for us to hear as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do long for your return. We read the news, we need read the news reports. And we see the evil at work in the world. We grieve and groan with all creation under the weight of disease and death and sickness. And we we cry out and long for your return. And Lord, we pray that while you delay, while you await your enemies being made your footstool, that you would grant us perseverance, that you would grant us faithfulness, that we would not become distracted, that the the weeds and the thorns would not grow up and choke out the word. Hold us fast, Lord Jesus, and do not let us go. Keep us faithful to the end. Keep our hearts undivided. Guard us from loving this world like Lot's wife did. Help us to be alert and attentive and ready at a moment's notice to follow you, even if it means forsaking the things of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.